Turn with me to Acts chapter 5 this morning. Acts chapter 5. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 27 and read down through the end of the chapter. Context, if you remember, in this chapter is the arrest of the apostles because of the jealousy of the high priest along with the Sadducees and others. Apostles spent some time in prison, then released in the night by an angel back in the temple, and then brought again to the leadership without violence, verse 26 says, because of the people's acceptance of the apostles and their teaching and what had been taking place. Verse 27 says, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. But when they heard this, verse 33, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and, he, and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. The apostles said something that got them in trouble. Verse 33 says, when they heard this, that is, when the Sanhedrin heard that, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. So words once spoken, which invites intense anger and a desire to kill you. What did they say? Well, they spoke the truth. They spoke the truth. 
What did the apostles say? They said God is our ultimate authority. Implying that this prestigious body was not their ultimate authority, although they were certainly the ultimate authority in Israel, they were not higher than God, and Peter and the rest of the apostles recognized that, that God had given them direction and that these men could not undo that. What else did they say? They said that God raised up Christ from the dead. They connected the God of Israel to Jesus Christ and said that the resurrection was accomplished by the God of Israel and Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. And not only is he the Messiah, but this leadership, this group of people is responsible for putting him to death, hanging him on a cross. Verse 30, Peter's language there, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. Remember that word is tree. So they put him on a tree to symbolize his being cursed by God. And this is God's Messiah. He's the one that God had exalted to be. Remember those terms, prince and savior, certainly implying his lordship, his leadership over the nation. And also they preached the grace of God, that God had exalted him to grant repentance to the nation and even forgiveness of sins. And then the last thing that the apostles said is that we are, we are witnesses. We, we saw these things, we testified to the truthfulness of them, and the Holy Spirit is as well. And that message, the message of the truth, and certainly applied to this council, to these people, was met with intense anger. The initial reaction of the Sanhedrin to that gospel message was rage. One commentator translated the word incensed. It says cut to the quick, but the word is a word for intense anger, incense. Another translation has furious. Another translation has enraged. The Sanhedrin is responding to truth with anger. And that certainly is, at different times in the scriptures, how an unbeliever responds. Even at times, believers respond with anger when the truth is spoken. Have you ever found yourself to be angry when someone tells you the truth? Just for a moment, turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, in the context of hearing God's word, there's a warning. James says this in verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So instead of being slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger, James says, in humility, receive the word implanted. I'm saying that's in the context of hearing the word of God, hearing the truth. James is giving instruction to the believers that he's writing to that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What happens when these men are told the truth? Really, the truth about God, the truth about their role in crucifying Christ is anger. And you can see Nebuchadnezzar responding with anger, throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. God had another plan that day. You can see Herod in his anger slaughtering all the children in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Anger is like alcohol. It can fill someone up to the point where they lose control, do things you would say that in a sane mind they would not do. When Jesus was preaching in Nazareth, and he said some things that pricked the conscience of the people. Luke records all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So this is rage at Christ. Rage at the servants of God the part of Nebuchadnezzar. Rage at not accomplishing your own purposes to destroy Christ on the part of Herod. And this is not to say that anger in and of itself is always sinful. It's not. But it is instructed in the book of James, certainly in other places, that if we're angry, we ought not sin. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 says, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Even the Lord is angry at times, though. The prophet Nahum said the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Octavius Winslow, pastor, churches on both sides of the Atlantic Ask the question, what is the patience of God? It is the power of God over himself. God's patience with man is only surpassed by his patience with himself. The Lord is slow to anger, and then it follows, he is great in power. So it was his, it is his greatness of power that restrains his anger until it must be on the basis of his justice unleashed. And there is something of the fury of God against sin. 
But this is the fury of man against the truth of God and against the servants of God. And what a contrast there is here to what happened earlier in the book of Acts as Peter said some of the very same things. The Jews standing there hearing the gospel on that day said, Brethren, what shall we do? When they were pierced to the heart, there was a response of humility of arranging themselves under God. And what a contrast when Josiah hears God's word in the Old Testament and rather than bucking against it, resisting it, defying it, he starts to weep and he humbles himself. He recognizes that the word of God is true and rather than arranging himself against God, he humbles himself before God and you look at the blessings start to flow in Josiah's life when he humbled himself. Not only blessings for himself, but blessings for the nation. And what are they going to do? When they heard this, verse 33, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. That's the desire of their heart, to put these men to death, just like they had put their Lord to death. And they had the power to do it. They had the capacity to do it. What's going to happen? If you read just verse 33 and up to this point, you would say, wow, what's going to happen here? All the apostles? But there's a God in heaven who can intervene in an unexpected way. And here he does. This is one of those times in Acts where God interrupts the flow in such a way that it's obvious his providence is at work even through unbelief. And I came across a quote from Stephen Charnock, Existence and Attributes of God, where he said, He that restrains the roaring lion of hell restrains also his whelps on earth. He and they must have a commission before they can put forth a finger to hurt how, how malicious soever their nature and will be. His empire reaches over the malignity of devils as well as the nature of beasts. The lions out of the den as well as those in the den are bridled by him in favor of his Daniels. His dominion is above that of principalities and powers. Their decrees are at his mercy whether they shall stand or fall. He has a vote above their stiffest resolves. His single word, I will, or I forbid, outweighs the most resolute purposes of all the mighty on the earth. If God says no... It's not going to happen. God is God. And this assembly in Israel, although you might look upon it and say this national assembly of leaders, all of the might and power, respect and authority that they have, if God says no, it's not going to happen. And how did he work? He used one of them, a wise one to stand up and speak and argue in a different direction. And so following that initial reaction of the Sanhedrin, you find an unexpected voice for moderation. 
and that's Gamaliel. We're introduced to him in verse 34. This isn't the only time in the book of Acts we hear about him. But he is a Pharisee. He's introduced that way in verse 34. Remember the high priest is gathered with Sadducees, verse 17. Here's a Pharisee. Remember, this group that came together was not necessarily ideologically in agreement. They are of different parties, but what they're against is these apostles and what they're doing. But even as they have arrested them and are now putting them on trial and listening to their words and very angry and intending to kill them, one stands up and he begins to argue and he's a Pharisee. You think Sadducees are accustomed to listening to Pharisees and following their advice? That's one of the things about this passage you have to say fits within the power and providence of God to persuade these who are listening. The Pharisees were, like the Sadducees, a religious political party. They're made up oftentimes of the middle class, oftentimes merchants. They were very meticulous about the law. And obviously, from the Gospels, we understand they also insisted on human tradition, which Jesus rebuked them about. So they're very oriented towards the law. But in this passage, this man, he's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law, a respected teacher. In fact, I would say very respected based on what we know of him. Turn over, if you would, for a moment to Acts chapter 22. Without getting into the full context of Acts 22, Paul is making a defense after he has been arrested in Jerusalem and nearly killed. And he wants to defend himself, and he asks permission to do that at the end of chapter 21, and he's given permission by the Roman official. And as he begins to defend himself, verse 1 of chapter 22, he says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So you get a sense of who we're talking about here? This is the teacher of the Apostle Paul. Why did Paul mention Gamaliel here as he's talking to an angry crowd? Because they knew Gamaliel... They respected Gamaliel. He's trying to gain respect just by the mention of this one who was his teacher. That's one reference here in Scripture that refers to Gamaliel. You could also look at the Talmud where it says, when Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the Torah came to an end and cleanness and separateness perished. There was a respect for Gamaliel memorialized, you could say, in the Talmud. So this is a man who's held in respect. Turn back to Acts chapter 5, and that's what Luke says of him. He's a teacher of the law, and that would be the Hebrew law. The, you would say the Pentateuch, but beyond that, the Scriptures. The law can refer either to just those first five books of the Bible as well as the whole Old Testament. But then it says, respected by all the people. 
So Luke is drawing attention to, yes, he's a Pharisee, but he is respected, including by those in the room. Though the Sadducees may have disagreed with Gamaliel on certain points, they respected him, certainly for his knowledge, reputation, and so forth. And this man is the one who stands up. And as he stands up, he gives orders to put the apostles outside the room. Some have surmised that he is somehow presiding over this. I don't believe that he's the presiding officer that would be the high priest. But based upon their deliberations, it seemed he had the authority to suggest something regarding their deliberations so that the apostles could be outside while they talked about something. One commentator said it this way, Gamaliel prefers to put his point of view in the absence of the apostles. The Sanhedrin can speak more freely and they will avoid giving the apostles the impression that they perhaps may be right. So whatever the case, he doesn't want the apostles in the room and then he makes his argument. His argument is in part historical, it's in part theological. The historical appears to be facts that everyone in the room knew based upon their knowledge of their history, but just needed to be reminded of. And beyond the historical, he's going to make the theological. But let's look at the historical argument for a moment. Verse 35, he argues for caution. It says, he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. So first of all, addressing the nation, of course, the leaders here. Remember, this is the leaders of the nation. This isn't just the high priest and a few associates. This is, they called everyone together. This is a national issue. And he says, men of Israel, he's addressing the leaders of the tribes, and he's urging caution, and he's arguing on the basis of two individuals in their recent history that gathered a following but eventually died and their movement came to nothing. Verse 36, for some time ago, Thutis rose up. Different possible reference points for that name, even though you might think that's an unusual name. Maybe that, maybe that guy's the only guy named that. He's not likely. Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, who's a military commander, captured, I believe, by the Romans, and then wrote a Jewish history. We have a history of the Jewish wars and the antiquities of the Jews that Josephus wrote, and he is writing from the standpoint of an unbeliever, but he's writing about both Old Testament history as well as the history of these times. And it's not just biblical history, but there are times where what Josephus writes about intersects with biblical history. And there's an attempt to compare to see what this historian had to say. Josephus wrote about someone named Thutis. He said, Now it came to pass, while Thetis was procurator of Judea, so that would be... Pilate's position, but years later, because Pilate also was procurator, while Phaedus was procurator of Judea, that a certain magician whose name was Thutis persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. 
For he told them he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. However, Fadus did not permit them to make any advantage of his wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen out against them, who, falling upon them unexpectedly, slew many of them and took many of them alive. They also took Thutis alive and cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. So this is what befell the Jews in the time of Cuspius Fadus's government. Now, the issue, the challenge with accepting that this Thutis that Josephus speaks about is the person that's spoken about here, is that that procurator came about 10 years after this likely happened. In other words, Gamaliel is speaking at a time when the apostles had begun to preach the gospel, but it's not that far into their time preaching the gospel. It's very early on. We're closer to Pentecost. That Thutis who led this rebellion or led this group of people is later on. And so the suggestion is that it's another Thutis. Some would launch into immediately, well, then the scriptures are wrong and Josephus is right. Luke has his timing off. But I think it's better to just recognize that the history of this time is not written exhaustively by Josephus. And this reference point from Gamaliel is a reference point that was known to them. doesn't have to refer to some other event. It could refer to another Thutis. And just for an example, one writer, as he examined the writings of Josephus, noted that there were four people named Simon within a short amount of time who led rebellions, and there were also three men named Judas who led rebellions. Rebellions against Rome or the Jews or whoever. So that's Simon, and that's Judas. We actually have someone named Judas. Again, not all the history was recorded. But whatever this refers to, and we believe Scripture is inspired, we believe that as Luke wrote, he's writing under the superintendence, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is written is the very words God wanted written, and we don't dispute this argument or the historicity of it. And that's not really the full point of the discussion, but it is to say that if Luke is referring to Athutis and he's recording this as an episode, it's at least the argument of Gamaliel and likely historically accurate, just not the same Thutis. What happens to Thutis? He's killed. And his following disappears. What about Judas of Galilee, verse 37? It says, After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. The census that is spoken of may well be the census that is recorded in the book of Luke at the beginning, where Jesus is born in Bethlehem because the census of the world was taken. Everybody had to go to their own city to be taxed. The Romans are instituting this census and this taxation, and is there going to be a rebellion during a time when people are being taxed suddenly by the Caesar? Yeah, there was. Likely not only Judas of Galilee, but others, even the zealots that eventually 
are mentioned in the New Testament were those who were opposed to uh, Roman rule and certainly any taxation. Josephus also speaks about a Judas. I mentioned he talks about a number of them, but he references Judas, a Golanite of whose city, a city of a city whose name was Gamala, who taking with him Sadduk, a Pharisee, became zealous to draw them as a, uh, to a revolt, uh, who both said that this taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery and exhorted the nation to assert their liberty. So, same Judas, possibly, but the reality is Gamaliel's using this as a historical argument. Why is he mentioning these two people? Because they, they led a movement that came to nothing, and they were killed. Now, here are the apostles who are leading a movement. And what's his theological argument? Looked at his historical argument. If, you know, if, 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 if these men rose up and came to nothing, why would that be? Verse 38, he says, So in the present case I say to you to stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. I would call that a theological argument, not because it, it, it doesn't mention God, but it is his statement, it will be overthrown, that shows you the confidence of Gamaliel that the actions of men, the plans of men, if it is just men and not God, will not succeed. That, I think, is the sense of what he's saying. And you can look at Scripture and see that principle to be true. The argument that he's making is true. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the plot against Daniel. Those lions, as some have called them, not the lions in the den, but the lions surrounding Daniel that wanted to devour him, that plotted against him, that enacted a law that Daniel they knew would break, and then when they finally got him, that was their plan, so that Darius would have to send him into the lion's den so that Daniel would be destroyed, he would no longer be in power, and they thought they got what they wanted. Because he did end up in the den. That was their plan. What they didn't plan on was the angel that came and stopped the mouth of the lions. They didn't count on was that Daniel's prayers made to God were effective. And that night, as he prayed, God answered his prayer. And just look at what happened with Jesus. There's a plot, obviously, against Jesus, multiple plots that failed. But when a plot seems to succeed... The arrest is made, he's questioned in the middle of the night, eventually sent to Pilate. Pilate, seeking to release him, doesn't accomplish his purpose, and this plot and plan that the leadership within Israel at the time, the high priest and his associates, are, they're trying to get rid of Jesus, and they actually get him into the hands of the Romans and finally get him into the hands of the officers and the soldiers who then scourge him and take him to the cross and crucify him in open shame, and their plan is accomplished? This is man's plan. 
Even you could say the devil's plan as he entered into Judas's heart. But, but God, right? God did something. They were not expecting when he raised Jesus from the dead. And their plot and their plan was actually overturned and God accomplished his plan as they thought they were accomplishing theirs. There's, there's something good here in the argument. I'm not going to argue that Gamaliel was a believer. I don't believe he was. But when he says in the middle of verse 38, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. What does it say on the front of the bulletin today? There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. And if you're plotting and planning against the Lord or you think you can get your way out of circumstance by your own means, God is too powerful. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, verse 39, as he continues his theological argument, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, some would suggest that Gamaliel, in that last statement, is hinting at his own belief, but not coming forward with it. I don't think you can say that based on how his posture is through this whole scene. There were other members of the Sanhedrin, like Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, who became disciples. Gamaliel is not one of them. I'm not saying he never came to Christ, but at least now he's not, he's not finding himself supporting the apostles. He's just arguing for toleration, patience, recognizing that the best action is not to instigate more trouble, but actually to leave them alone. And he's arguing theologically that is, if, if this is of God, you won't be able to overthrow it. He leaves open the possibility. So he advocates separation, verse 38, stay away from these men and let them alone. He argues that they should have this expectation that he's basing his thoughts on, that if this is action of men, it'll be overthrown, but it's, if it's of God, it won't be. And he does issue that caution, really a caution that anyone ought to take to heart because of who God is. To not oppose God. To not oppose God. God cannot be overthrown. God is God. 
And we need to humble ourselves before him. Every single one of us. To oppose God, to fight against God is so foolish. Do not fight, 2 Chronicles 13 says, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers for you will not succeed. Ask Pharaoh who fought against God, who disregarded God's words repeatedly. Let my people go, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And in the midst of that, Pharaoh in his pride is saying things like, who is the Lord that I should obey him? What a fool. I say ask Pharaoh, it'd be hard to do that because he's at the bottom of the Red Sea, destroyed with his army, the might of his army. Ask Balak. Balak, who thought he could curse the children of Israel through the hired prophet Balaam. Balak, who brought Balaam up to the top of this mountain so he could see all the tribes of Israel. Curse them for me is the question, the offer. I'll give you money if you do this. Balaam says, well, I have to say what I'm told. And so he goes away and he listens to what the Lord says and he comes back and he says what he's told. And the Lord pronounces blessing, not cursing. Balak says, what are you doing? It's not why I asked you here. Let's go to somewhere else. He thought maybe another place could do it. So they got to a different position. They asked him to curse him again. What happens? More blessing for Israel. God's purpose was not to curse his nation. It was to bless his nation. (laughs) The third time, Balaam doesn't even go out to go hear from the Lord. It appears that he's actually purposing to try to do what Balak is asking. And you know what happens? You ever read that? Numbers 22 through 24, what happens? It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Balaam and he prophesied. And as he prophesies, blessing upon Israel, blessing upon the future Messiah, the star that will arise from Jacob. And what's that star, what's that Messiah going to do? He's going to crush Moab. Guess who's the king of Moab? Balak, who just asked him to curse. Balaam is eventually killed in battle for opposing the Lord. Ask the nations of Canaan as they fought against God, as they gathered together, five kings together, thinking that with their might they could overcome Israel. But as those five kings came together, Joshua prayed that the sun would be stopped And Israel fought against his enemies, and the Lord fought for Israel that day and destroyed all their enemies. What happened to the nations of Canaan? And what happened to their kings as they opposed the Lord? I'm talking about nations. Powerful political rulers who tried to oppose the Lord. 
Who do you think you are? You know how it happens? You oppose his words. You oppose the words of this God. That's what they're opposing. That's what these leaders are opposing. And Gamaliel's arguing, you don't want to be found fighting against God. There is no wisdom. No understanding. No counsel against the Lord. It appears that Gamaliel knew that and understood that even though he had yet to believe in Jesus Christ. He just knew the Old Testament. And he actually taught a man. And that man eventually wrote something that you probably know. And it's true. If God is for us, who can be against us? You can't fight with God. That's the message that's coming to the nation now, but that message really ought to sink home in our hearts as well. And what does God do? He uses Gamaliel, this unexpected voice for moderation, who stands up and makes a historical argument and a theological argument, and then it's just kind of, what's going to happen here? What happens? Verse 40. They took his advice. They were literally persuaded by him. What does the proverb say? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As rivers of water, he can turn it wherever he wants. This is certainly one of those cases where just one voice standing up, God influencing this body of leaders who were intent, some of them at least, intent on killing the apostles and the power to do it. And one of their own stands up. What an unexpected way. God does work in unexpected ways. He works in mysterious ways, as we sang this morning. One writer said, Gamaliel's pragmatic moderation works to the apostles' benefit. God can raise up unlikely defenders for his people. I took a class at one point with Dr. Leighton Talbert, and he, as he talked about this passage, he cited a story in the life of John Payton, John Payton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides. He was trying to reach these people with the gospel, but at one point he found himself in the midst of a tribal war, and the people did not want him there, some of the people. Some of the people who had come to Christ did. And at one point he's in the midst of a village that's being approached by savages, And as he recounts the story, one of his companions sat down, or asked him rather to sit down while this group of savages is approaching some distance off. This man's name was Noar, N-O-W-A-R. 
and said, Missy, speaking of the missionary, Missy, sit, sit down beside me and pray to our Jehovah God, for if he does not send deliverance now, we're all dead men. They will kill us on your account. And that quickly. Pray, and I will watch. Now, what would you do if you were in that circumstance? I mean, you can see them coming, and your, your fellow believer, you're the missionary, this fellow believer who's came to Christ, you preached the gospel, he came to Christ, says, sit down, you pray, and I'll watch. Can you imagine that? It's faith time, right? It's time to have faith in God for me to even, rather than run, to just sit down. <laughs> Peyton says, we prayed as only one can pray when in the jaws of death and on the brink of eternity. We felt that God was near and omnipotent to do what seemed best in his sight. When the savages were about 300 yards off at the foot of the hill leading up to the village, Noir touched my knees saying, Missy, Jehovah is hearing they're standing still. And then he says, we saw a messenger or herald running along the approaching multitude, delivering some tidings as he passed, and then disappearing into the bush. To our amazement, the host began to turn and slowly marched back in great silence and entered the remote bush at the head of the island. Noir and his people were in ecstasy, crying out, Jehovah has heard Missy's prayer. Jehovah has protected us and turned them away back. What was that messenger offering? Pig roast in the next village? I don't know. But what would turn a multitude like that? You know, David was being chased by Saul around a mountain. And as he's being chased and he's just about caught, Saul's men are coming around this mountain. He's on the backside. They're just about to get to him. You remember what happened? A messenger came and said, the Philistines are attacking. And so Saul almost has David, but he has to leave that and go fight against the Philistines. God can use the Philistines. In that case, he saved David's life. I mean, David, David was the enemy of the Philistines, right? So what is God doing here? Verse 40, they took his advice. He's protecting his own, at least from death. We got to read in the end of the passage because it's at least from death. And if you get... Saved from death. Praise the Lord. But beyond that being saved from death, notice what happens to them. And this is where we see the final decision. They took his advice. They're going to moderate. They're not going to kill the apostles. But look at what happens. Verse 40, they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they'd already arrested them. Angel released them, brought them back. They're thinking about killing them, but God uses a moderating voice, but now they still get flogged. And that shows you that these men 
who though they did not kill them, they still had great antagonism towards them. They still had hatred for them. And they were going to use the law as, an, as a weapon against these apostles. According to the law, you could strike someone 40 times. The custom, as Paul talks about in one of his epistles, was 39. 39 so as to not break the law, to show mercy. If there had been any kind of miscount, they just did 39. This is the law's response to certain crimes. They're not really charged with a crime other than they've disobeyed the order not to speak in Jesus' name. So they received this flogging, this beating, publicly. It was a means of certainly physical punishment, inflicting of pain to them, but also was the shame. In the middle of the city, to have these men publicly flogged would be a shameful thing for them to be punished by the law. That hostility shown by the flogging, also shown by their second order not to speak in Jesus' name. Notice that in the end of verse 40, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. I think I could say this, that if you're ever given an order not to speak in Jesus' name, you can disobey it with God's authorization. That's not to say you won't suffer. Because they did, and all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We can expect tribulation, trouble, persecution in this world when we stand for Christ, when we speak for Christ. So if you speak, you preach the gospel, it's not to say you won't suffer, but you can disobey uh, that, that earthly authority with God's blessing. And it's also not to say, and I want to be careful here, it's not to say that you won't get fired from your job if you speak up for Christ. I think it's important to remember that if you are working for someone, that you're not being paid to evangelize. That's not why they're paying you. You're being paid to work. But there are certainly ways to evangelize those that you work with without using company time. I think we need to be wise about even how we preach the gospel. But the apostles here are given an order, and they're going to disobey it. You see at the end of the section here. And they're released. And as they're released, what are they rejoicing about? Verse 41, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were released and could go back to their homes. Is that what it says? Now, I'm sure they were glad to go back to their homes. I'm sure they were glad to go back to their fellow believers. I'm sure they were glad not to be imprisoned. I'm sure they had lots of things to be glad about, but the thing that Luke notes that they're rejoicing in is their They're glad that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ, to be disgraced and dishonored for this name that they were preaching. The ultimate shame and dishonor that they had experienced and seen was when Jesus was taken and crucified 
openly, publicly, on a Roman cross. And they didn't get that, but they got something like that. They got a public shaming, and it was because they represented Jesus Christ. They preached the gospel message. If I could put it this way, they were given the honor of suffering shame for Jesus. That's an honor. Peter later said it. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What does Peter say? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This was a testimony that the Spirit of God was working through them, that they suffered shame and dishonor and disgrace for the name of Christ. Peter goes on to say, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Praise God! So they're rejoicing. They're released. They're rejoicing, verse 41. And what do they do? They return right back to their ministry of preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. And how did they do it? Notice verse 42. Luke specifies it's every day. It's publicly in the temple. It's privately, or at least from house to house. They're ministering and teaching in the homes and it says they kept right on doing it. it that, that word means unceasingly. They were not literally not ceasing to preach and teach Jesus as the Christ. Would that we would have such a love for the Lord, a submission to his lordship, obedience to him, that just what is spoken of there in verse 42 would be true of us. That every single day, publicly, privately, unceasingly, we would be telling others about Christ. What is keeping us? Is there in your life a proclamation of the gospel? Are you telling others about Jesus? Are you engaged? Are you pursuing that? Are you praying for others that you might be able to proclaim the gospel? What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who receives the teaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and tells others about Jesus and his teaching. I'm simplifying, but that's what a disciple does. Are you doing that? You say, I'm a disciple, I'm a believer in Christ, but you never tell anyone about Christ? You never talk about him? You never evangelize anyone? How can you, how can you reconcile those two? And I, I, I realize there's fear. Uh, we, we fear what other people are going to think and say. That can be overcome if we fear God, if we love Christ. There's also just the reality of sin. Instead of following Christ and pursuing Christ and obeying Christ, there's sin in your life. 
And you're not interested in telling other people about Christ because you're, you're dealing with whatever you're dealing with, with your sin. Captured in the cords of your own sin and following after the world and looking at the world and being like the world. Would that verse 42 would be experienced by, well, we don't have a temple, but would that this would be our testimony every day, publicly, privately, we just kept right on like the apostles did. There's all sorts of opportunities that we have. Of course, we have what we're doing right now, pulpit evangelism. We can tell people about the gospel of Christ right here and now. Someone could come and they didn't, never heard and this is where they hear. There's also plan where you go and you have someone you know needs Christ and you go, you spend time with them, you get to know them, you build a relationship with them and you seek to reach them for Christ. There are some who go to a place where people pass through and they stand there as a signpost pointing people to Christ. There's going out into our neighborhoods. Yes, sharing information about our church, but seeking to engage people for the gospel. There's some of us who we're trying to reach people within our own home or people within our immediate, our, our family. And then, of course, as we live our lives, the Lord brings us into contact with people, sometimes unexpected conversations. Sometimes we develop a relationship at work or somewhere where we can give someone the gospel. But whatever it is, we need to be engaged in it. What is our mission? If our mission is to make disciples, disciples have to hear about Jesus Christ. How are they going to hear about him? Without a preacher. And I'm not talking about somebody who's standing in the pulpit. I'm talking about each of us as we proclaim the truth of the gospel to others. This is God's purpose. It was his purpose for the apostles. He said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And God loved the people of Jerusalem, and here is another very public opportunity for them not only to witness to the leadership of Jerusalem, but then as they're released to go out again and to spread forth Jesus' name. What a privilege to be an ambassador for Christ. Are you an ambassador for Christ? Are you seeking to make him known? Are you seeking to develop relationships with your neighbors? Are you seeking to participate? I want to encourage you to participate. Uh, you might say, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I don't know what I would do if I got in a conversation with someone at the fair that I didn't know how to deal with. I want to encourage you. We're not going to be there. Just one person will be there in teams and hopefully help one another, engage people, and witness so that people might come to know Christ. There are many people in this area who do not know Jesus Christ. There are many people who think they know him, and they're under a false delusion, a false religion. And if I'm going to stand before the Lord one day, certainly as a pastor, but also as an individual Christian, I want to be faithful. And I think if you know the Lord, you want to be too.
I just want to encourage you to do that. May the Lord help us all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you sent someone to us. Thank you that you delivered the gospel message to us. Some of us grew up in homes where we heard the gospel from very early age. Others of us heard the gospel later on in life in your plan and purpose. We thank you, Lord, for those who delivered the gospel to us. And we pray that we might be those who are willing even to suffer for the name of Christ. Thank you for these men that you chose and trained, Lord Jesus, and empowered by your spirit. Thank you for the example they set of suffering shame for your name. And we pray if we are sometimes disgraced or spoken ill of or rejected, help us to remember that they rejected you too, Lord, and help us to keep on preaching the good news. We ask, Lord, for your help. We do ask, Lord, again, for those opportunities that we have in our community to evangelize our community, those of us who are seeking to evangelize someone in our home, perhaps family members. We ask, Lord, for boldness. We ask, Lord, for the heart to do so. And we do ask, Lord, that if someone is living in sin, walking in a path of disobedience, and they're not engaged at all because of what's going on in their life. Lord, we pray that even today they'd come to a place of repentance and once again believe the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners from their sin. That they would turn from their sin, repent, and get right with you. There's someone here today who does not know you at all, Lord, and has never turned to faith in Christ. We ask that you'd work in their heart today. Bring them to the place where they humble themselves before you and submit to the Lordship of Christ and confess him. Turn from their sins and follow him all the days of their life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.